Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. This podcast is designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know, all in 20 minutes. I am Hazel Baker, qualified London tour guide and CEO of londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Our walking tours are there for those who love London and want to make the most of their time here, no matter whether it's for a weekend or a lifetime. We aim to deliver well-prepared and insightful guided walks and private tours to make it an experience worth remembering. It's been a busy time here at London Guided Walks HQ. We've launched a brand spanking new website, making your online experience with us even better. Not only do we have a cross-site search function, a better laid out blog and tour pages, but we also have new London tour guides offering new walking tours. We also have a new and improved London History podcast section, which now includes full transcripts, photos, videos and recommended reading. You can find this new section the usual way at londonguidedwalks.co.uk forward slash podcast or come to londonguidedwalks.co.uk, click on London History in the menu and select podcast. We've included lots of new images and have linked to related blog posts and other podcast episodes where appropriate. Don't forget, if you enjoy our podcast, then please, please rate and review. It really warms the cockles of my heart to read your appreciation of this labour of love. Get that cup of tea, put your feet up and enjoy. When walking over Tower Bridge, you may have noticed a set of decorative plaques that have been installed across the footpaths. These bronze plaques show names of workers of Tower Bridge, including a fitter by the name of Henry Jane Collins, who worked there between 1896 and 1900, or an engineer, Philip Souter, who worked there in the 1980s. Decorative roundels alternate with those former Tower Bridge staff, and some carry ornamental elements of the bridge, its nuts, bolts, flowers, dragons, pistons, etc. And another displays three slippery eels. Why is there a plaque to eels on Tower Bridge? To help enlighten us is today's guest, John Wyatt Greenlee, also known as the surprised eel historian. He's a medieval historian whose work focuses primarily on maps, spatial history and, yes, eels. We've got an interesting topic for you today, listeners. It is the Dutch eel trade in London. That's a sort of fascinating, a really long-standing trade that goes back to at least the 14th century and, and maybe even before. So I'm happy to be here to talk about it. You just touched on the origins of this. How did it all, all begin? I hadn't even made a connection with the, the Dutch and eels. Pre-modern England has this really long history with eels. They're a terribly important part of the sort of diet for everybody from peasants all the way up to kings and an important part of the culture as well. They get used as a pseudo-currency in early medieval England with people paying taxes and eels and they show up in art and literature and all kinds of places. And it boils down to the fact that they're just eating a ton of eels. Somewhere in the 
early 14th century, so pre-Black Death a little bit, the English start importing eels from the Dutch to mostly to the south of England and primarily to London. And it's not entirely clear why this sort of shift happens. There are some reasons I know for a fact. So one of the things that has happened is that the the Dutch have spent the first part of the 14th century heavily mining their peat bogs. And one of the things that's happened is that they've mined their peat bogs to the point where they've created lakes, essentially. A huge part of their inland territory is becoming lakes. And it, they've basically made it into a fantastically verdant eel habitat. And so the Dutch wind up getting more and more eels than they had previously had. One of the things that happens in the Black Death in you know, 1348, 1349 is in Holland is there's a flight to the cities. That a lot of people leave the countryside and go to the cities, which is a little bit of the reverse of what happens in mm. other places like Italy. But And they, they abandon a lot of these sort of these, these inland territories. And the, these ponds that they made have been managed by weirs and dikes and dams and floodgates and all sorts of things. And they start falling into disrepair. And the people that wind up getting them tend to be sort of merchant families from big cities, from like Amsterdam. So they wind up buying these inland territories that are really inexpensive. And then so they wind up in control of these canals and waterways and things. And one of the things that they do with them is they start fishing the eels. And then you wind up with these merchant families in Amsterdam and, and other cities who basically get control of the eel trade and they have more eels than the Dutch want to eat. <laughs> and so they start looking for places to ship them and they wind up shipping them all over Europe, actually. The Dutch trade eels broadly in, into sort of the interior of the continent, but also they start trading them to England. And they start doing it initially dried and preserved eels that they're trading, bringing across in barrels. The, live. Sort of the, they've got to be live. Not initially, they're preserved. Dried and then salted and stuck in barrels. You can transport live eels in barrels because they can live out of water. And so you can pack them in between layers of wet hay or moss and they can live a while. But initially what they're trading are, are salt. And so the first records we have of this come from the 1360s, really, from London. But they also make it clear that these are... the it's an arrest record, actually, I think, if I'm remembering that, or a petition to the king. But it, it's it's clear that the person who's making this petition against his arrest has been doing it for a while. So the records start in the 1360s, but it's clear that they've been doing it for a while before that. And so initially, they're bringing them over in, in barrels, lots and lots of barrels of eels. And then they switch in the 14... For, by the 1470s, they're starting to bring them over live in the sort of hold of, of sort of Dutch waterships where they're basically the hold of the ship. It's like a giant floating aquarium. So the hold of the ship is full of water and it's got holes in the side of the ship that let water flow in and out. And these are either really small holes or they're bigger holes that have screens on them. And so the eels can't get out, but you get water flow through that keeps the, the sort of the water fresh and that helps the eels live longer. And so they're putting the eels in the holes of these ships and then bringing them across the channel and up the Thames and parking them in the middle of the Thames off of, mostly off of Queen Heath, but, but also Billingsgate. But Queen Heath is the first place they park and sell them. And they put them, they park, they park these ships in the middle of the Thames so you get water flow through them. And if you want your eels, you take a smaller ship out to them and they pull up the eels and measure them out. And this approach works with, and it wouldn't work with just about any other fish because eels can transition between freshwater and saltwater relatively easily. I think you have to give them a little bit of adjustment period. So they leave the ships at the, in the estuary of the Thames for a couple of days and let the eels adjust and then bring them up. But you couldn't do that with most other fish because they can't make that sort of transition, but you can with no, eels. Thinking about some saltwater and freshwater and queen hive is just um, 
Blackfriars Bridge. That is where uh, traditionally the freshwater then started the Thames. So Queen Hyde is just a little bit before that, where, where that transition begins. So quite an interesting choice for them. But of course, Queen Hyde with being the uh, a very busy and also very smelly wolf as well. So uh, that <laughs> might have been uh, another reason. But I mean, it's uh, how did they sell them in sense of was you said they were measured them in length. Was that how they did it, or was it by weight? By weight. I'm sorry. Yeah, they measured them by weight. So you, you took a ship out a small ship out to the Thames and they would pull them up with a net and, and weigh them out and, uh, and, and you'd take them back to shore with you. You get it super fresh, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and, and would these be businesses buying them in bulk or would it be individuals, households buying the eels? Both. So a lot of, it's a little hard to tell from the early period. We know from much later because these ships stay on the Thames with the exception of a small break in the 17th century, they stay on the Thames until 1938 doing this. So know from a lot later that that a fair amount of the business buying eels from these ships is going to, it's, it's street vendors. So either fishmongers coming out and selling to street vendors or street vendors themselves going out to the ships and, and buying them and, and coming ashore. But also there's individual people, individual households who are going out. If you don't want to get your, your eels from a street vendor, you don't want to get, you want, and you can take the time to do it yourself, then you can go out. So it's, a little bit of everything, I think. They said that's harder to tell exactly what's going on in like the 15th century because we don't have a lot of records, but we do from later. So they're selling to whomever wants to come out and buy them, I think. What was the appeal of eels? So that's an interesting question, right? We don't tend to eat a lot of eels anymore. And so I get that question, especially in the United States where I live, we eat almost none of them outside of eel and, and unagi and Japanese food. I, I think there's a bunch of things for pre-modern England, right? They are... First off, it's a really abundant food. Eels have traditionally, historically made up as much as 50% of the fish biomass in the downstream sections of rivers in Europe and England. And so it's just, there's a huge number of them. They, so they're abundant. They are a really good source of protein and fat. And so they're, they wind up being a poor person's food later. They, they pick up that, that sense in the 18th century plus. But early on, sort of everybody's eating them. There are records of, of Kings eating eels and nobles, and they're one of the most commonly purchased foods in noble households, eels are. And, but all the way down to peasants, too. Sort of everybody's eating them. They're just a really important part of the, the, the sort of cultural diet. And they are religiously important food, too. There's a, it's been in the medieval period, there's, in the high medieval area, the era, there's about a third of the year are fish days, right? F- days yeah. where you're only supposed to, you're not supposed to eat meat, but you can eat fish. And the reason you're not supposed to eat meat is because, so meat. And the medieval definition of meat is basically something that lives on land and has hooves is a really rough definition. But you're not supposed to eat that because meat is a, it comes from animals that reproduce sexually. And during Lent or other these sort of church holidays, you're not supposed to be thinking about sex at all. But Thomas Aquinas is pretty clear about this. He says cows and things like that make you think about sex, but fish doesn't so much. And eels are particularly sexless kind of fish in the medieval imagination. They, they understand how they reproduce. And I think, and coming from Aristotle and sort of antiquity, this idea, they have this idea that eels reproduce asexually, that they have a spontaneous reproduction of one sort or another. They're not quite sure what it is. But so eels are a fish that doesn't produce sexually at all, doesn't have anything to do with sex in that perspective. So they make for a really good food for, for these fish days. And in England... So I said about a third of the year are fish days by the time you get to the high medieval period. And these continue on after the Reformation and are actually enforced more vigorously after the Reformation than they were before. Because there's a fear that if they get rid of the fish days, that it will 
sort of be a financial crisis for all of the, the fishmongers and fishermen and everybody else. And even after the Reformation, these what are essentially Catholic holidays, right, get enforced more vigorously than they had been previously for entirely secular and economic reasons. Yeah, I totally get the uh, the economic reasons. And I think um, you know, it's important to, to remember about the, how religion really moulded people's lives. There was a structure there as well of what they can and can't eat. And of course, the rich people ate the meat anyway because they could afford to pay the fines. Nothing changes there, does it? Well, no, it's, medieval people are like people today in a lot of respects, right? There are going to be people who follow the sort of religious guidelines to the letter and live their lives by them. And there are going to be people that don't at all and the whole spectrum in between. And have you come across any decent recipes? There, yeah, there are a number of medieval recipes that I, I can point to. There's a really fancy one called Rever- the Reverse Deal, which doesn't show up in English in English cookbooks very often, uh, but it's more a French recipe where you take the eel and, and fillet it and then turn it inside out and stuff the, the inside with bread and you know, dates and fruits and spices and things and, and whatever tasty things you have. And then you sew it back up and cook the entire thing in red wine. And mm-hmm. I've always thought that sounds really fantastic. A lot of medieval recipes for eels are... Medieval recipes aren't like modern recipes. They don't give you step-by-step instructions. So a lot of times the recipes are like, cut the eel, cook it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> put it put it in the bread. They assume, they're assuming that the people reading them are, are working, are sort of professionals or, or people working mm-hmm. in, in kitchens already. And, and like, it, they're reminders more than like instructions for people that don't know what they're doing. But they eat eels in a lot of different ways. They eat a lot of eel pies, which is still, you know, relatively common. Yeah. The eel pie and looks like probably a lot of the sort of more simple recipes are just sort of cutting up eel rounds and, and cooking them in a pan with some basic, basic herbs. They get put in fish stews and pies and things. The smoked eel that are the most common for like I, I mentioned earlier that they people pay their rent in eels and usually those are paid once a year and in somewhat large numbers and often in the monasteries and those eels are almost always salted and smoked and medieval smoking is a cold smoking process which is slower and leaves you with a much less tasty meat at the end of it so those that eel tends to get put in a stews and things like that where where you can disguise the 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 most well-known eel recipe probably in England at this point is jelly eels, which is not a medieval thing at all. It's a, that's a 19th century invention. So they didn't, that's a question I get a lot is, did they eat jelly eels? And the answer is no, they didn't. That comes along a lot later. It's, I find it all fascinating, really, because I'm trying to, to work out in my head how eels have fallen off the... If it was quite a, a, a usual main staple of people's diets, as you quite rightly mentioned, we've got we've got eel pie mash stalls all, all over London, reducing, sadly, but uh, it's an acquired taste, isn't it, The uh, an eel? For me, it's not the taste, it's the uh, the texture. And you saw my face when you mentioned jelly eels. Oh, I just can't do the jelly at all. It's funny, isn't it, how things change? It is. Uh, so I've never had jelly deals either. And I, I have to admit that looking at pictures of jelly deals puts me off. Yeah. At, at this point, eels, I think in England, have a real lower class sensibility. The, in East End food, it's a, it's a lower class food or a tourist food at this point, yeah. right? Yeah. You go to the East End in London, you should have some jelly deals. They pick up that sensibility from about the sort of the 18th century on where they start getting this sort of lower class sensibility. And I think... I, I think it has to do, and I'm not certain about this, but my guess is that I, I mentioned that these ships, that these are the, the Dutch ships trading eels in London, are the primary way that 
Londoners are getting their eels, and they, they are for a really long time. But there's about a 15-year period between 1666 and 1681 where the ships aren't on the Thames anymore. This is right in the middle of the Anglo-Dutch wars, and they get kicked off because the uh, the parliament and the king of this idea that that they want to reinvigorate an English sort of eel fishing. And so they they ban foreign imports of eels, and so the Dutch ships leave. Uh, and they're gone for about 15 years. Now, it turns out that they, the English can't replicate what the Dutch are doing. Um, among other things, they don't know how to make the ships. There's a really fascinating anecdote. That, so the king has an eel purveyor, a purveyor of fish and, and eels, and he wants him to bring eels over to get eels. And, and the guy has to get permission from parliament to go across the, the channel to, to the Dutch to buy these ships because he says that nobody in England knows how to make them. So the Dutch are the only ones who know how to transport live eels in bulk. And in, in, in seventeen eighty, you get a series of petitions to Parliament basically saying, hey, we need to let the Dutch back in because like, we, really, we, we can't supply our own eels. And part of what's going on there, too, is the English are draining the fens, and so they're destroying their own sort of native eel habitats. Mm-hmm. So... In 1681, they allow, they sort of, Parliament passes an exemption and lets the Dutch come back to the Thames. Um, Everybody else is banned from importing eels, but the Dutch are okay. So they come back, and this time to Billingsgate rather than Queenhive, and they park there. And like I said, they stay there until 1938, selling eels from these ships anchored or chained in the, just off the, just off Billingsgate in the Thames. I think that 15-year period is a real sort of breaking point in a lot of interesting ways, where the Dutch aren't there and they're not selling eels, and, and eels fall off the diet a little bit in London. Because to that point, eels show up a lot in metaphor, in art, in, in plays. They're in a lot of like early modern plays. Shakespeare mentions eels more than any other fish. And there's a real hard break after that, where they suddenly stop appearing in literature and in, in metaphor and all sorts of things. Um, and I really think that the, the sort of moment where this 15 moment, it's a, I'm a medievalist, so 15 years is a moment, but the sort of moment where the Dutch aren't on the Thames anymore for the 15 years, I think really makes a shift in in how people are thinking about and, and consuming eels. And they come back, and after that, after the Dutch come back, the, the eels really pick up the sort of lower class sensibility that that they, they, they stick with through the present, basically. And through the 19th and early 20th centuries, the the poor people in in London were still eating a lot of eels. But with the sort of advent of better refrigeration and better transportation, you get, and broader varieties of food, you get more availability to more people of different kinds of food. And as always happens, people want to live like people they see as better than them, right? So if I can eat like the rich people, I want to eat like the rich people. And so there's a, in the sort of early 20th century, there's a move away from eels. And so the Dutch are selling eels on the Thames until the 1930s, but the the sales keep dropping off and getting less. And they leave prior to World War II, but by the time they leave, they're really not doing a whole lot of business. And the ships don't come back. After sort of in the 1950s, the, the Dutch start importing eels to London again through, basically through, mostly through shipping them to Yarmouth and bringing them in through refrigerated trucks. But it's a really small fraction of the business at that point. So I think it has to do with sort of class sensibilities and sort of availability of other kinds of food. Yeah, I suppose if you take it out of the the people's normal food chain, uh, when it's reintroduced, well, they've obviously found something else to eat for 15 years. That's a long time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's an entire generation of kids that grow up not really having eels in London, grow up with not having eels as a, as a substantial part of the diet. And it, it gets tricky. London drives so much of... English sort of cultural production that it's sometimes it's easy to look in the past, especially to look at 
things coming out of London and assume that it's what's going on in all of England. And that's probably not right. But the English are probably in the countryside are probably still eating eels on a pretty regular basis. But it does really change how broadly how the culture is looking at the food. And you know what they did eat instead for these 15 years of no eels <laughs> other than English eels? I do not actually. That's a really that's a that's a fascinating question. Other things, obviously, and apparently they pined for their eels because they petitioned to get them back. They petitioned whom? A parliament. Yeah, there's a couple of petitions to Parliament asking to to allow the Dutch to come back because they can't get enough eels, native eels, into London on their own. So we had self-confessing eel addicts. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic so i love this idea of the invention of the dutch once bringing over salty deals and then going you know what we can do bulk and also minimizing the 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 the, the process of preparing the eels mm-hmm. uh, by not hitting them over the head and not salting them saving on salts um and barrels and let's yep. just create one big barrel i.e <laughs> the ship <laughs> And let's just move them all over. That's ingenious, isn't it? It is. And it's it, those waterships are a ship that the Dutch use for a whole bunch of things, including they do use them for inland trade, for fish like this, and taking water out to, to big ships in the harbors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and somewhere along the line, they, somebody has the brilliant idea that, oh, we could, yeah, we could put the eels in these and just take them across the, the channel and, and do it that way. Fantastic. And what's the Dutch word for them? I'm assuming not Vassaborten. No, Paling? And my Dutch, I, I can't pronounce Dutch at all. It's P-A-L-I-N-G. And one of the ways you can tell that the Dutch become, how important the Dutch eel trade is in London is that starting in the 15th century, sorry, mid-15th century, that word palingman starts to be the way that the parliament describes eel sellers in London. So they're using the Dutch word to describe it. I'm going to have a little look now and see. And and the Dutch never convince themselves to eat their own eels. They do. They eat lots of eels, actually. But they have so many more than, than they uh, than than they can eat natively. I think, and it becomes a really important part of their economy as well. This eel trade. And they said they they trade eels all over England. And as they start to drain their own inland spaces, they start doing a lot of fishing in Danish waters, in the the sort of strait between the Danish strait between sort of Europe and and Scandinavia, and then bringing those eels back down the to Holland and keeping them in basically big pens in the in before they can take them wherever they need to take them. Fantastic. And have you got any particular favorite artwork of an eel? Because I know you share a, a, a number of them on, on, on Twitter, but for London specific, have you got anything that you uh, that you particularly like? I do actually a category and this is the thing that got me interested in eels in the first place is they show up on maps of london these sort of really nice big scenic view maps that are done by holler and norden and some other people so starting in 16 you get these eel ships on these maps and there's uh, norden does one in 1600 and then vischer does a couple and then holler they show up on a bunch of holler's things in his maps and his artwork of london and they're easy to spot because they're always right off of queen height and there are always two of them together because they get they, they park two of them at the same time. I got really, in, I got interested in, in, in the eels at, at all because I was, I'm a cartographic historian by training and I was looking at these maps of London and these, these ships stood out because they're labeled eel ships. So you know what they are. And that's really unusual. Everything else in these maps that is a label is like, is it a neighborhood like Queen Heath or mm-hmm. a big civic monument like London Bridge or the Globe or something like that. And things that can't sail away, like big native parts of the the civic infrastructure. Yep. And then you have these yep. eel ships. And what are these ships doing 
labeled sitting here because they can leave anytime they want. And in fact, leaving to a fixture. Yeah. Leaving, in fact, winds up being part of the, they have to leave, they have to leave and come back. So they're, they're clearly like a landmark. And then I started wondering why. And that led me down just like a tremendously long series of, of, of intellectual rabbit holes that at the end of the day, I wound up being an eel historian rather than a map historian, but it's been, it's been fun. So I, I think those, that's, I think the sort of category of artwork that I, I find really London eel artwork that I, I, I love most, the, the, the maps, especially the Holler, Winterstall's Holler's maps from the 1640s are just fantastic. I have um, a copy here. So when I put the phone down, I'm actually going to have a look now because I have never I've noticed the eel ships. Yep, they're, they're labeled. What looking for. So two together, do you think that was because one was um, coming with new stock and the other one had depleted stock and they were able to move old stock into the new ship and then that one can go? So you're keeping it fresh? Or... No, actually, it's slightly more complicated than that. There are Passing upriver from London Bridge is always tricky, right? Because there's only sort of the one space in the bridge where you can go. And so there are, there's legislation, not the right word, but there are, are rules about for these kind of ships coming in, how many can go upstream to Queen Hythe and how many can stay downstream at Billingcote. And you wind mm-hmm. up with basically two at a time are allowed at Queen Hythe. And then, so, yeah, so they, one gets empty, the, the next one comes and swaps out. And this, they wind up doing this at Billingsgate too. They wind up doing two at a time. And it develops this really fascinating mythology in the 19th century, that this sort of idea that somewhere along the line, there was this um, charter for one reason or another from one monarch or another. It changes depending on what you're reading, that these, that these ships were granted a sort of free docking rights for as long as it's a great story right they're uh, free docking rights as long as the as the docking chains don't remain vacant for more than two minutes there's, there's this swapping out thing that happens it's a completely apocryphal story um but it's it's a great one anyway but no so they yeah so they, they trade them in and out and there's only sort of two at a time allowed especially at queen height because they have to pass up through the bridge and norden and then vicious maps and hollers always show two at a time and then Holler paints them, he, I think he really liked them, but he paints them in some of this other, he does other artwork of London and you can see them on the Thames because you can see there's a, a there's a particular tower, sort of a water pumping tower. The square um, one. Yes, the square one. Yeah. And it's, it's really, it, it, in Queen Hythe, and it's really noticeable. Like it, it really marks the spot. And so you can tell in, in his paintings where his other sort of drawings, where the ships are. And there's always two of them right by those, right by that tower. Holler really seemed to enjoy them. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. I'm going to uh, have a look at that map myself now so I know exactly what an eel ship was because I'd never heard of them before. So I can't make believe I've missed them. Yeah, and Holler painting ships are really realistic. Like you can get a really good sense of, of what they look like. The earlier earlier ones, Norden's ones, are a little less realistic to what the ships look like. But it's fascinating. They They keep the same basic design for, you know, 500 plus years the ships in the 1930s are basically the same ships that they were using in the 15th century they've they've taken up some of the space in the back with with a motor and and an engine but that's it if it's not broken don't fix it yep exactly fantastic oh john thank you so much that's been absolutely brilliant i i love learning new things anyway but this is brilliant (laughs) thank you so much really appreciate it my pleasure thank you so much for having me 
Well, I hope you've enjoyed that and learned a few things. As I mentioned in the introduction, with our brand new website, you can now check out the full transcript and also photos and videos, etc., that we have for this podcast episode. And if you want to continue medieval uh, London history adventures, then have a listen to episode 64, Medieval Toilets, 61, Medieval London at the Museum of London. And that's a good one to listen to and go to the museum before it closes in the summer. Uh, Number 48, which is Leper Houses in London. Episode 47 is London's Medieval Priories. And also episode 38 is The Black Death, London's First Plague. Of course, we do a medieval guided walk and private tour in London as well for you to enjoy. And you can uh, really get a feel for what it was like for an average Londoner living in medieval London. That's all for now. See you next time.